Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. The second epistle of Simon Peter to the strangers scattered throughout what we would today call central or western Turkey. 2 Peter and the first chapter. I read to you the first two verses. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen and amen. This is only the salutation and only part of the salutation. It's only half of a sentence. And yet I hope that we can dwell on some of these words and find things for your knowledge and for your comfort, your strengthening, and your instruction from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And we should humble ourselves before it and delight in every single word. God has written to us in writing His will for our lives, His declaration of the truth of the universe, things that we cannot know otherwise without Him telling us about them. And we want to delight in these things. When we preach through a book, it's called expository preaching because you're taking the words of Scripture and explaining them. Instead of topical preaching, which is taking a subject or a topic and then developing it from various places in the Bible. Most of the Bible is written like a topical study, not expository, but preaching in an expository way has its benefits, and I want you to remember some of them. Some of you love expository preaching because you know exactly where we've been and where we're going to be, and you can go and follow along in the very words that God used. You can hear and understand and remember some things better. And so when you're asked the question, what did the preacher preach about today? Well, oh, you know that one, Second Peter chapter 1. You know, you may not remember some of the details, but you know where, and you could go back and you could remind yourself of some of the things that were taught. When this happens, you can focus on each sentence, verse, phrase, and even a word for fine learning. It helps us learn the Bible, not just a subject from the Bible, though both kinds of teaching have their place. You know, expository preaching helps keep the speaker closer to the Scriptures because it's inspired words that are driving his study and his teaching. Second Peter, this little three-chapter book of the Bible, has a lot of things that it touches upon, so there's going to be a variety of topical studies that come up from its verses. Second Peter teaches about living victoriously, right here in these opening verses, proving your election. That ought to be very important. Right. We believe in election. We teach election. We defend election. We promote election. We love the doctrine of election. But this chapter tells us how to know if we're elect. And that is an important question to get answered. It, it tells us that repetitive teaching is important for a pastor. It shows us the proof of Christ's glory. So this, I'm still in the first chapter. The sureness of Scripture. Amen. Remember, the more sure word of prophecy is here in this first chapter. Second Peter is going to show us false teachers in chapter two, examples of God's judgment, warning about being disrespectful of civil rulers. It's going to show us about false professors that creep into the church, false liberty that they promise sinners, belly worshipers. And then the third chapter is going to show us about the second coming, God's long suffering, the end of this world, the new heaven and the new earth, and a final press to holiness. This is the word of the Lord. I'm his ambassador. God wrote these words. Every thought of your head is absolutely worthless and trite. And tripe. Go home and look it up. Compared to these words, every thought of my heart and of my mind is absolutely worthless and trite and tripe. Compared to these words, these are the words of God. We want to delight in them. The fact that it opens with a man's name is itself unusual when compared to the Pauline epistles or or named after this man. 
We want to remember that Simon Peter was an important apostle in the beginning of the New Testament church. And so we want to value every word. If you can hold your hand at 2 Peter chapter 1, which is where we will be dealing today, let's look back at Nehemiah chapter 8 and remind ourselves of that wonderful passage of Scripture that tells us how to preach. This verse and this chapter should be required learning or even memorization in seminaries, but most don't even know about it. And yet this is the plainest description of preaching. Preaching is not storytelling. Preaching is not some emotional appeal to you. Preaching is what we're about to get right here. When it says preach the word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is how you preach the word. Verse 8 of Nehemiah 8, the whole chapter is the best, most thorough, complete description of a preaching service in the Bible. And we've been over it many times before. Verse 8, so they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Well, that's preaching. You read the Bible distinctly, you give the sense of what the words mean, and you cause the hearers to understand it. We don't chant in Arabic. Because we're not Muslims. We don't give a homily in Latin as Catholic priests did for 1300 years. We read the Word of God in your tongue. We give the meaning of it and cause you to go away with understanding of God's Word. That is what preaching is. It's, it's not entertaining from the flesh or for the flesh. It is from God to you if you want to understand God's words. In this particular service, they appreciated it so much they ended up having a great celebration of mirth because they had understood the words that were declared to them. It tells you that in verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. That is a preaching service. All the people came together as one man in verse 1. They humbled themselves and bowed down before the Word of God, saying, Amen, Amen, in verse 6. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture, and uh, we would get way off track if we were to stay there any longer. So we come back to Second Peter chapter 1. God's words are pleasant and profitable beyond comparison. Amen. Job said that he esteemed the words of God's mouth more than his necessary food. You take pains to make sure you get your necessary food, but Job said God's words were more important to him than that. These words are different than the words of any other book. These words were inspired by the Holy Ghost. They're of special design, and they're accompanied by the Holy Spirit, so they affect men at a different level and in a different way than any other book. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. If you would just stop every single day or a couple times a day and just read one verse of Scripture and humble yourself before it and ask the Lord to show you something from it and read its every word, it would feed your soul. If you approach that Bible, believing that Bible, trusting that Bible, humbling yourself before whatever it says to you, it will feed your soul. It will energize your life. It will strengthen you to walk and please God. It will calm your fears. It will lift your thoughts. It will inflame your heart. It is a glorious book. We neglect it to our own neglect. We are foolish. We are lazy. Lord, help us love your word. And you know, if if you get this as one of the main thoughts of preaching here for a few minutes, praise the Lord. If we go home and read his word more carefully... You know, some people may think that I am a compromising, sissified preacher for suggesting our one chapter a day reading program. Well, if you think so, don't provoke me because next year it'll be a one verse a day reading program. Because I don't want you to get lost in passages of Scripture you don't understand, and I don't want you to get tired, and I don't want you to think, Oh, I've got to read three chapters and then read them at an accelerated rate, not appreciating what you're reading. I want you to slow down, read something that you understand, and let it feed your soul. 
you say, but for the last number of years, you've used the same chapters basically every year. Sharp observation. Do you think that you can ever exhaust those chapters? Not a chance. Every time we read them, we see something new. The crossing of the Red Sea. Have you read that before? It's wonderful. There's no, there's nothing like it. David said, I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy law is exceeding broad. God's word is special. You deprive yourself, brethren, of strength, of joy, of contentment, of power in your life by not reading God's word. Oh Lord, help us. Help us. Pray for your pastor as we go through, um, second Peter that I will rightly divide it and do with it what we what should have be done. You know, I just mentioned that every man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Holding yourself at Second Peter 1, look back just a few pages to a Hebrews chapter 4. For a few of you scholarly types, let me entertain you for just a minute or two. Hebrews chapter 4. I taught you this last Lord's Day. This I just love this point. In Psalm 95, the second half of Psalm 95 is a description of the rebellion of the Israelites not taking the land of Canaan. God delivered His two or three million people out of Egypt, brought them to the Jordan River. They sent spies across to check it out. They came back and said, unbelievable. The grapes have to be carried, a cluster of grapes between two men on a pole. That's a pretty decent vineyard. The cities are built, the houses are built, the wells are dug, the vineyards are planted, the houses are furnished. It's a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey, but they didn't take it. And so God killed them all. You say, well, that wasn't very... That's the God of heaven. When He brings you to the edge of a blessing in this life and you refuse it and you want to go back to Egypt, if you want to go back into the world, if you want to go back under men then He'll judge you accordingly. So He dropped them all dead in the wilderness, those that were 20 years of age and under, and it took 40 years to do it, so they cost their children 40 years. And that's a long story. But in Psalm 95, we have words about that event. And if you read it, you would think that it is just a historical description of what took place back there in Numbers chapters 12 and following. But there's one little word in there, do you remember? From last Sunday... Someone make me happy. There's one little two-letter word. If. If turns the description into a conditional statement that there is another rest coming. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 argues from this little word, if. Look at verse 5. And in this place again. Now when it says in this place again, it's referring to Psalm 95. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Verse 7, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David. What does he mean, saying in David? He means saying in Psalm 95. Today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. This is, this is just sweet. We believe every word of God in this church. And we believe that if. And without that if, back there in Psalm 95, you would think that it's just a historical description of God cursing Israel when they came out of Egypt because they didn't get the land of Canaan. But we've got the word if right here, and Paul bases his whole argument on the word if. That is one of our one-word arguments. Here's the Apostle Paul taking David's writings and finding that little word if and making his argument depend upon it. NIV. Look, I want you to look at Hebrews 4 or 5. Oh, the Lord loves us, brethren. Yes. Listen to this. You look at Hebrews 4 or 5, and I'll read it from the NIV. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Uh-oh. What word did they leave out? If. Then there's no argument. They've ruined the passage. They've ruined Paul's argument. 
They've ruined two books of the Bible. If you've ruined two books of the Bible, can you trust the Bible? Let me read it from the New American Standard Bible, that Bob Jones favorite when I was there. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. If is missing again. How about the uh, God's Word translation? God also said in the same passage, they will never enter my place of rest. How about the American Standard Version of 1901 that my beloved father got to use in Bible college and seminary? And in this place again, they shall not enter into my rest. That was just a little entertainment. I enjoy things like that because it's the Lord comforting us as His little babes that we have more understanding than all these scholars with all the letters after their name who sign off on Bibles and destroy David's argument and destroy Paul's argument. That's All of that was because we believe every word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Pray for your pastor. We depend for correct understanding on God the Holy Spirit, that I will rightly divide the word of truth, grasp all the Holy Spirit intended, but not go beyond the Holy Spirit, that I will make it manifestly clear and as simple as possible, that I'll preach it boldly and authoritatively, and we need to do what we learn, and that I'll follow a course that will be profitable for all of you, that I'll show you the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of all Scripture. Your speaker, your pastor, your preacher, your teacher is less than the least of all saints for starting such a project, but the Lord can open this book to us even while we're studying through it. Lord, help us. Labor to learn this epistle with me and retain its lessons and explanations in your memory. You could read, you know, one chapter a day, Monday through Saturday, and you'd cover the book twice a week. And you could really focus on some of these words as I'm going to hopefully explain them to you. You could memorize a couple favorite verses. You could listen to a few sermons from MP3 recordings on our website. You could pray for your pastor to make it exceptionally, manifestly plain for you particularly. The context of any speech or writing is important. And we always ask who, whom, why, what, when, and where. Those are the six W's. When you read something, you want to know who wrote it, to whom is it written, why was it written, what kind of material is it, when was it written, and where was it written. And remember, we found out some pretty neat things in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 that 1 Peter chapter 5 that Peter wrote that from Babylon. And that was very interesting to find Peter in Babylon, five to seven hundred miles away from Rome. Just little things like that. You know, this book is written by the Apostle Peter. Of course, God the Holy Spirit is the author, and Peter took the dictation and wrote it down for us. The Holy Spirit inspired his name to start this book, reminding us that we ought to consider Simon Peter. Peter's gifts and faults are clearly known because they're clearly recorded in the Bible. More is known about him than the other 11 put together. Since so much is known and recorded, we want to remember it. Saints have found consolation, connection, instruction, and warning by reading about Peter. He's a perfect writer for this book. He knew the Jewish situation well. And he was writing those scattered Jews that were in Asia Minor in order to confirm them in the gospel that the apostle Paul wrote them and that the gospel Paul and that the gospel that Paul taught them those were churches started by Paul sustained by Paul and kept together by Paul but Peter here a Jewish apostle wrote them these two epistles to confirm them we saw that clearly shown in chapter 5 verse 12 of 1 Peter and it's going to come back in the very end of chapter 3 of this one where Peter is going to refer to Paul and about his scriptures that he had written them and that they were together in agreement about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. For sinners coming to scripture to learn of Jesus Christ, Peter is dear, as you had read to you today by our three brothers. You know what is recorded historically? Jesus was found by Andrew when John the Baptist pointed him out And Andrew was uh, through with John the Baptist, and he decided that he would go follow Jesus. But before he did that, he went and got his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. Jesus renamed him from the Old Testament name Simeon 
that Leah had named one of her sons, which means heard, because Leah was heard and had another son after Reuben. But Jesus changed Simon's name to Cephas, which is Aramaic, or Peter, which is Greek, both meaning the same thing, a stone or a rock. And he plays off that as Brother Ryan read to you about the Lord Jesus Christ who's the rock of our salvation. He was bolder than the rest of the apostles, so he would leap forward and make declarations about Jesus Christ like Leon read to you. In Matthew chapter 16. Do not be confused by my little review of Peter here. The real matter is the inspired words through him. There's really little to nothing else we want to know about Peter except the Scripture record of what is said. Now, to whom did he write? This epistle of 2 Peter, who is it written to? The first epistle tells us. And if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, it will tell us the audience to whom Peter wrote. And so when we're looking for context, we ask who, whom, what, why, when, and where. And so we we know the who, it's Simon Peter. What's the whom? Who is the whom? Verse 1 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's a small area of central and western Turkey. And those are five little Roman provinces or areas in which there were Jews that were scattered strangers because they weren't Gentiles like everyone else that lived in their subdivision. They were Jews having been scattered by God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. They're hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and Israel, so they're strangers in a foreign land by God's judgment. So that's where they are. That's who they are there. And Peter is writing the same group of people because Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us this. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So 2 Peter 3.1 tips us off that it's the same audience. So it's those Jews. we got a Jewish apostle writing some Jewish strangers who are living among Gentiles and going to churches started by Paul who are made up of mostly Gentiles. That is the audience. What's the purpose? Paul preached a gospel that was against Moses' law that was repugnant to most Jews. Peter confirmed that it was the truth. Peter wrote to exhort them to godliness. If the first epistle was the gospel of hope, and it was, the simplest, shortest description of 1 Peter is the gospel of hope, the good news of hope. Because throughout 1 Peter, there is a great deal of emphasis on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory to be revealed. If we were to to make such a short description of the second epistle, it would be warnings to godliness. Because he's going to warn us to greater godliness, and he's going to warn that audience to greater godliness in each of the three chapters. There's going to be a lot of heretics that we've got to deal with in Second Peter. There's going to be scoffers in chapter 3 that deny the second coming of Christ because it hadn't happened yet. There's going to be scoffers that promise Christians liberty, which leads to lascivious living in chapter 2. And in chapter 1, the foundation is laid down that God's Word is more sure than any charismatic vision or dream from anyone, including hearing God's voice from heaven. And so there's a great deal of emphasis on the certainty of the words of God and Scripture against all the ideas of false prophets and teachers which would make havoc of the church. A third reason is that Peter wrote to confirm the Jewish saints in the second coming of Jesus Christ. The timing of this epistle. We don't know exactly what year, but it's not long before the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's just before Peter was to die. Because it tells us in verse 13, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, that means his earthly body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. So it's just before Peter died. This is what he wrote when he wanted to leave a message with his Jewish compatriots in another country. This is what he gave them. And so we want to value it by that importance. 
And you know, you had read to you John chapter 21 that tells us the way in which Peter was going to die, but it wasn't too plain, was it? Jesus said to Peter, you know, when you were little, you went wherever you wanted to. But when you get older, you're going to have to stretch out your arms and you're going to be going someplace you don't want to go. A crucifixion death to glorify God through Simon Peter. When the time came for Simon Peter to be crucified by the Romans, he said, I am not worthy to be crucified and to die the way my Savior died. Crucify me upside down. He would glorify God. John 21. How do, you, how do I know He was crucified upside down? I'm glad you asked. I want you to always ask. That's church history and tradition. Can we prove it? No. Can we prove that He was crucified? Yes. That was the Roman means of death. And your hands will be stretched out against your will and you'll be taken to a place you don't want to go. You say, that's pretty obscure for me. Well, how about this one then? And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is going to ascend into heaven and be lifted up? No. It means he's going to hang on a cross a few feet off the surface of the earth. Right. Observations. You know, we, we teach the doctrine of election. But everyone should want to ask the question, am I one of God's elect? Right. That should be of paramount importance. It's answered in this epistle. This epistle has a blast against dreams and visions, overruling them and ridiculing them by the more sure word of prophecy. A great rule of Bible study is right here in this first chapter in verses 20 and 21. Look at verse 20, knowing this first. We could and we have called this the first rule of Bible study is right here in this chapter. 2 Peter chapter 2 has a great number of similarities to Jude for both deal with the danger of false teachers. 2 Peter 3 is a great antidote for a rising heresy in the conservative churches, Bible churches of this country, and that is preterism, that all the prophecies of God have been fulfilled. 2 Peter 3 shows that they haven't been fulfilled and what their fulfillment is going to look like. 2 Peter chapter 3 also tells us, this is an interesting observation that comes out of this book and nowhere else, that the New Testament was almost completely together while Peter was still alive. Because he refers to the scriptures, all the scriptures of Paul. You ought to read church history where the Catholics claim that in 397 A.D. and 400 A.D. they established what the New Testament books were. How late were they? 325 years. Because Peter established Paul's epistles as scripture in the closing verses of 2 Peter 3. You know, if you wish that this study proceeded faster, be patient. Consider others and thoroughly grasp what I cover. If you wish it was going slower, read and review and study to gain more comprehension. The more familiar you are with these three chapters, the easier you'll understand more when we get here on the Lord's Day. Simon Peter. We have here in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter. Unlike Hebrews, where Paul was not identified... Peter is identified to Jews throughout Asia. And we understand that. A servant and an apostle. The apostles were special men. We believe in apostolic authority. We believe in apostolic doctrine. We believe in apostolic tradition. And we want apostolic passion and fellowship around the Lord Jesus Christ. But Simon Peter here identifies himself as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. When Peter says he's an apostle, there's more evidence for it, and we can believe it and trust it rather than men today who say they are apostles. Now you had read to you that when Jesus stood on the shore with a little fire with bread and fish, now Jesus already had caught his fish without a net and without a line. And he was already making that fish fillet. That's a McDonald's product. That's trademarked. On the shore, he said, come and dine to Simon Peter. And it said it was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his apostles after his resurrection. 
and see, that is necessary to be an apostle. If there's a church in Greenville, and there is, it's the World Redemption Outreach Center. His name is Ron Carpenter. He tells his church he is an apostle. The Bible doesn't tell us that Ron Carpenter is an apostle. God hasn't told us that Ron Carpenter is an apostle. The hairs on the bottom of a caterpillar, which the Farmer's Almanac values, hasn't told us that Ron Carpenter is an apostle. On what basis is he an apostle? He said he's an apostle. But do you know what you have to have done to be an apostle? You had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ with your own eyes. And the last man to do it was our brother Paul. And so when Peter says it, we you had read to you today the third time in which he saw the risen Lord Jesus after his resurrection. And so when he says he's an apostle, we believe him. When the apostles are listed, do you know who is always listed first? Simon Peter. When the three favorite apostles are listed, do you know who is always listed first? It's a rough day today at the train station. I'm full of sweetness. I love your train, choo-choo. Give me a minute so I can remember what testament I was in. When the three favorite... When the three... Charlie, brother, I love you. I'm sorry. Um... When the three favorite apostles are listed, who's first? It's Simon Peter. And so the Lord exalted Simon Peter and gave him a place, and so we have a couple of books in the New Testament that have his name attached to them. Even after denying the Lord Jesus Christ, when the list is given in Acts chapter 1, this is only the grace of God. And see, I need the grace of God, and I love the grace of God, but in Acts chapter 1, after Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times, when the list is given after that event... Who's first in the list? Simon Peter. I love the Lord. I hope you love the Lord. That He's so full of grace and mercy toward all of us. His apostolic role was great. There in Acts chapter 1, just a few days after he had denied the Lord, he led the rest of the apostles to replace Judas with Matthias. He opened the gospel door to the Jews at the day of Pentecost and to the Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts 10. He spoke first at the Council of Jerusalem and its controversy about the Gentiles and the law of Moses. But Peter had no supremacy over the other apostles. You know, the Catholics want to make him the first pope, but along comes Galatians chapter 2, where the apostle Paul rebuked Peter to his face and said he was to be blamed that he was wrong. Now, how's that for speaking ex cathedra? You know, when a pope speaks ex cathedra, which means ex, out of, cathedra, the bishop's seat, the cathedral is a place blessed by a bishop of the Catholic Church. When a pope speaks ex cathedra, it means he's infallible. But how's that for Peter's infallibility? When uh, Paul rebuked him to his face and wrote it down in Galatians chapter 2 so that all Catholics subsequent would know that Peter was not the first pope, but they still believe it. Because God has blinded them and sent them strong delusion that they would believe a lie, which is what is written in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. If you reject the truth that God gives you, like Peter being rebuked by Paul, then God will further blind you. Lord, we believe everything you have written, and what we don't believe because we don't see it clearly, show it to us, we'll repent of our error, and we'll believe whatever you show us. We love your word. We do not want to hold a single error. I like the fact that Simon Peter says a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he sticks the servant in front of the apostle. An apostle was an illustrious office. That was a high-ranking office in the church. What rank did it have? First rank. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. The church was built upon the foundation of the apostles. But he put servant. I like that. When we were in Romans chapter 14 and holding your place at 2 Peter 1, let's look at Romans 14 and remember the attitude we ought to have. I hope it's the attitude I have. I believe it is. I want it to be the attitude you have. And that is, though we are the sons of God, let us be the bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Peter, though he was an apostle, said, first, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be bond slaves 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We owe Him everything. He has bought us with a price, and we are not our own. It says in Romans 14, 7, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. You aren't your own. You're God's. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that He might be Lord both of the dead and living. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose again. Jesus Christ lives forever at the right hand of God to be the Lord of the living and the dead. When we die, let's die to the Lord. What does it say on the front of this pulpit? This should help you stay awake. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. Amen. Philippians 1.21 My mother's marker. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Because we're the Lord's. And so, as we look at these words, you know, Simon, that was his name from Leah's Hebrew name, Simeon. Simon Peter. Peter was the name Jesus gave him. No one else had called Simon Peter until Jesus called Simon Peter. And when it was Aramaic, he would call him Cephas. Sometimes Paul would call him Cephas, and sometimes Paul would call him Peter. Both Peter and Cephas mean a stone or a rock. Simon Peter, a servant. And right now we're on that word servant, and we're delighting in it that, that Peter would put the word servant in front of his office that he held of apostle and though we are the sons of God let us have the attitude that we are the bond slaves we are not hired servants we don't work for a paycheck we're bond slaves we're owned property of the Lord Jesus Christ I I just like that and and I want you to like it with me a bond slave is a stronger term for a slave clarifying and making sure that you are owned and you're not paid And this passage tells us, you know, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I was was bought on the slave trade block of the universe of damned souls. And so I'm a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I want all of us to say as a church, and no matter what he wants us to do, we put our podium up here in the center aisle, and we do it. And we do it with zeal. And the zeal comes first. And the love for Christ comes first. And everything else comes second. And when we have done all that is our duty to do, what are we supposed to say? Lord, I'm a pretty big sneeze in your kingdom. No, Luke 17 and verse 10 says, when we have done everything that is commanded of us, we are supposed to say, I am an unprofitable servant. I have done that which was my duty to do. Amen. Don't give me a pay raise. Don't pat me on the back. Don't tell me a good job. I've just done that which was my duty to do. That's what Jesus said our attitude should be. And I hope that's our attitude. That attitude should excite us. To be a bond slave with that kind of an attitude. Back to Second Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name of a historical man born in Bethlehem, raised for a short while in Egypt, taken to Nazareth to be raised the rest of the way in his life. Jesus is a historical man in the pages of Scripture. He is also God. Over the last couple of days, I've had an occasion, an opportunity to explain the doctrine of Jesus Christ's sonship to a man in our area who wrote asking about it from finding us by way of satellite and our website in our own area, in our own zip code. And it's wonderful to explain it. Jesus is the Son of God. That is our doctrine. It is not complicated. It is not deep. It is simple. And most Christians believe it. It's theologians that want to read men like Origen, the Egyptian, and try to come up with an explanation for Jesus instead of what the Bible says. Jesus is the Son of God. That is what we believe. Before there was Jesus, who was the Son of God? Before there was a Jesus. 
You know, when you say those words, people go, huh? Are you saying Jesus isn't eternal? Are you kidding? Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Are you kidding? We wouldn't. Yes, he's eternal. But what is he eternal in? His divine nature. The God part of him. Jesus was a God man. He was the Word of God made flesh. And so when we read these words, and we're just going to take a moment here to stop on the word Jesus, that is the Hebrew Joshua that comes through Greek into English, and it's Jesus. It means Joshua. Jehoshua. That'll make it easier for you. Joshua has seven names in the Bible. One of them is Jehoshua. And when you were to look, if you were to look at the word Jehoshua, and it starts out with J-E-H-O, what word does it tip you off to think about? Jehovah. And Shua is the second half of his name. That is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. That's what the name Joshua, which in Greek and coming to English is Jesus, means. Because the angel Gabriel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Mary in Luke chapter 1, thou shalt name that boy Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so when we see that word Jesus, do you love that name? I'm going to tell you something. The Bible tells me in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. What is the name that is above every name before which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father? What is the name? Jesus. You know, when you have to hear Benny Hinn and some of these other shysters using his name in blasphemous ways, it takes away the glory of his name. When you have to look at pictures of him in a manger all the time, when he's sitting on the right hand of glory, when you have to see him hanging on a cross like some skinny little effeminate guy, you get sick of it. When you see him standing with long hair like a John Lennon lookalike, begging at some door to get inside it, you get sick of the name of Jesus. But brethren, we've got to flush all that garbage. Those are devilish caricatures of the Lord Jesus Christ to take away the esteem and love of His people for the glorious conquering prince of the kings of the earth that He is. Amen. So love the name of Jesus. Right. Oh, therefore, listen, may I please quote it one more time to you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Oh Lord, we love You. I wish I knew how to preach You and I wish these people knew how to embrace You with me as our Lord Come soon for us, Heavenly Father, and rescue us out of this place. We thank You that You are Lord of heaven, earth, and hell. You have the keys of death and of hell. You open and no man can shut. You shut and no man can open. You are our all in all, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we love You. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ is a word that is the Old Testament Messiah. It's the anointed one of God. God had had planned from as early as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, God spoke to Adam, you sinned, you're going to have problems raising crops to feed your family. To provide for your family is going to be a painful process. He said to Eve, because you sinned, you are going to have trouble in childbirth and you are going to be under the rule of your husband. To the devil, he said, There's going to be enmity between you and the woman and her seed is going to bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. As early as Genesis 3.15, we have a promise of this Christ, an anointed special one coming from God by birth in a woman without a man that would destroy the devil. That is Jesus Christ. So when Simon Peter writes, he's not talking like Benny Hinn. He's writing as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. After he had fished all night, he sees a man on the seashore who says, Children, have you caught anything? No. Cast your nets on the other side. So they cast their nets on the other side, and there was 153, what kind of fish? Little tiny throwbacks? 
Or does it say 153 great fish? Uh, Then John does one of these. Peter, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. Peter's naked. He grabs himself a coat and jumps in. Is that the, that's the man we're reading. Right. Did he love the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Had he just denied him? Lord, have mercy upon us and forgive us our sins. We want to be revived and made to feed your sheep and feed your lambs. And yes, Lord, go ahead and ask us, lovest thou me more than these? I hope that all of you are sitting there thinking, Lord, I love you more than the pastor loves you. Then I'll be a happy pastor. And if you are all to beat me in the love of Christ, I'll be content and that'll be good. But you better start loving him. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them, that's the audience from the first epistle, that have obtained. Now this is where we can have some fun. You say, I've been having fun. So have I. But do you know what this says? Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. How in the world do we get faith that is like the apostles' faith? How do we get it? Do we work it up? Do we have motorcycles for Jesus? Do we have Christian rock concerts? to try to work up something from the old man that we can call faith. But see, this isn't just any faith. This is like precious faith with us. Meaning, apostolic kind of believing. Like the apostles believed. Are you you such a believer that when they come to crucify you, you'll say, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Do me upside down. Oh, to have that kind of faith. Are you getting close to it? Could Do you like thinking about it? Lord, help us. We obtain faith. I don't need to explain faith to you, do do I? Just a couple more minutes and we'll have our break. But I want you to understand that it says here that we obtain like precious faith. Do you know what that means? God gives it and we get it. All right. That means God provides it and we receive it. We obtain it. We get it. We don't work it up. You know, following the Lord is not by the will of the flesh. It is not by the will of man. It is by God. And are there other places in the Bible that tell us that faith is a gift from God? That faith is the work of the Holy Spirit in us? That faith follows God's grace in us? We don't have faith first in order to get God's grace. We can't do it. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural man. We will not believe. We cannot believe until He changes us and opens our heart and gives us faith. And so we've got it right here that we obtain faith. Obtained like precious faith. We didn't work it up. It was given to us. And so we were put into possession of it. Look at James chapter 2 that you read last evening. James chapter 2. Just a couple of these references. This is wonderful to have apostolic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a gift from God. When we think, brethren, remember back to Wednesday, remember back to the previous Wednesday, when we look at the population of earth of 7.3 billion people on the globe, or in a pie chart, forgive me, globes and pie charts look alike because the pie chart was to represent the globe and the population of it, but anyway, the pie chart, how many believe truly in Jesus Christ the way that we believe in Him? Oh, it's such a small sliver of the 7.3 billion. And it's by the grace of God. We have obtained a gift from the Lord Jesus. A gift of faith. Look at James chapter 2 and verse 5, where James is exhorting these believers, these Jewish believers scattered abroad, to be kind to poor visitors that come into their church. And he uses this argument, verse 5. Hearken, hark, listen to this, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him? Who's doing the choosing to have rich faith? God is. 
God has chosen the poor because if you compare this to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has chosen the poor, the weak, the foolish, the base, and those that are nothing to bring to naught those that are something. It's God's choice that men have faith and it's God's choice to make the poor of this world better believers and better Christians than the rich of this world. And He does it to exalt His glory and to humble the rich. And so it says in James chapter 1, if you flip back a page, it says in James chapter 1 and verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice. Are there any brothers of low degree here today? (laughs) I was expecting to see a forest of hands. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. God has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. He chose them to have faith. He chose them to salvation. He gives them faith. They obtain the like precious faith that is God's gift. Look at Acts 18.27. Acts 18.27. This is Apollos. He has just been converted by Aquila and Priscilla at home after having preached And they detected that he was in error on some points. They took him home and explained to him the way of God more perfectly. Verse 27, And when he, that is Apollos, was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. Do we believe to get grace? Or is grace through belief? which had believed through grace. Grace comes first. Grace causes us to believe because grace includes the gift of faith. One more verse. 1 Corinthians 12. Oh, just, I mean, what I meant was one more verse before break time. Because I've got a list here of 20. About faith being a gift that God gives that we obtain like precious faith. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In order to be able to say Jesus is Lord like we have just been saying, like we have just been believing, singing, and thinking from these opening words of 2 Peter chapter 1, it is only by the Holy Ghost. That's how we obtain like precious faith because faith is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and 3. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. May we consider these words, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Wonderful. Amen.